Hello, I'm Gordon Buchanan and welcome to Beneath the Baobab, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. In this series, we're exploring the vital connection between communities and wildlife in conservation projects in Africa and around the world. Today, I am honoured to be joined by pioneering Zimbabwean conservationist Clive Stockhill. Conservation has been Clive's life's work, but he says that to achieve long-term sustainable conservation on the African continent, communities and people have to work together. And that's why he's focused on developing and forging relationships between conservation projects and communities through coexistence that benefits everyone. For Clive, all of this was born out of his childhood in rural Zimbabwe and of seeing his local community displaced by the development of national parks in the area. The 1990s saw him founding the Savi Valley Conservancy, one of the largest private game reserves in Africa. This comprises 750,000 acres of biodiversity in the southeastern Ayoveld of Zimbabwe. It's very much a miracle to have achieved what we have done in moving perceptions and increasing conservation areas with the support of communities. Today, Clive is still just as connected to the community he served for 40 years through the Chilo Gorge Safari Lodge complex. Clive joined me to talk people and wildlife beneath the baobab. So Clive, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm so glad that we can connect today. So at the moment, you're actually out in the community. Can you tell me a little bit about your location? Yeah, I'm currently within the Mahenia communal area, which is adjacent to the Gonorijor National Park, which is situated in the extreme southeast part of Zimbabwe. This community follows the Save River down, wedged between the Gonorijor Park and the Mozambique border. The history of this small community goes back a while, as they traditionally were part of the Shangan tribe, albeit a smaller community known as the Shengwe, who lived along the Saibi River and traditionally were hunter-gatherers. And in my view, they lived pretty much in harmony with nature for many, many centuries. And I think this has contributed towards the success that we have achieved because we're dealing with the quality of the environment in which they live, which will determine the quality of life for humans. We're uh, right in the communal area adjacent to the park. Okay. So looking out my window, it's a fairly grey day in Glasgow. There's goldfinches, which is nice to see, some dunnocks. I see the foxes have been rampaging through my garden, making a right mess. Outside, so how far do you have to go from where you're currently sitting before you start seeing African wildlife? Well... Just out the front door this morning, there were a herd of elephants that were crossing the river, leaving the communal land side out of the Jamanda Community Conservancy across the Saudi River back into the park. We see it around us every day and we're surrounded by wildlife, albeit within a communal area. And that's one of the successes of what this program has been able to achieve. And um, before we talk about sort of what's currently happening, I'd like to ask you a bit more about yourself and your background and how this all started for you. So I know that you served 
this community in conservation for over 40 years. But where did it all really start for you going way back? I guess I was privileged to have been born and raised in this area, in the wilderness, as it were, appreciating the values of nature. And of course, early years were spent in remote areas. Our nearest neighbors were 50 miles away. So my childhood was spent many days with the local community and growing up with them and appreciating their values in conservation. So I think I was privileged to have grown up in this area right from the beginning. And that contributed to my interest, I think, as a child in wildlife and conservation. And that, I think, set my ambitions on becoming more involved in contributing towards maintaining these valuable wildlife areas. Yeah, and that's, I suppose, a very important point because you grew up appreciating and understanding the nature that you were surrounded by. But as importantly, you grew up understanding and developing relationships with that community. And that is sort of stood you in good stead, I suppose, for you, what has become your life's work. Yeah, no doubt that early encounter of these wilderness areas and their attraction, but at the same time, being involved with the community helped me to better understand the need to coexist. That's why when I returned from college, started working within the Gonorini 80s, it became abundantly clear to me that to achieve sustainable conservation in long-term terms, that one couldn't ignore the importance of bringing people on board in support of conservation initiatives and values. And that's how this all started. So yeah, you've kind of answered my next question, which was going to be, how do you go from being a kid growing up in a rural area to becoming a conservationist, a pioneering conservationist? Was it always your desire to work within that of, or answer that calling, I suppose? Yeah, I, my mission when I left college was to go straight into conservation, to sort of try and protect and contribute towards these valuable protected areas, particularly the Guanarijor, which I knew from a childhood. But as I got involved with the conservation challenges and obviously the illegal wildlife trade started back then, we were losing elephant, we were losing rhino. And the more and more I looked at the challenges, it became apparent to me that we weren't going to achieve long-term sustainability if we were just going to create these protected areas and put up a fence and ignore people. People had to be part of the solution. And that conflict that existed at the time of independence 40 years ago really paved the way for this whole concept of community conservation initiatives, which led then to the establishment of the Campfire Program. You said earlier that the Shangan community lived in harmony with nature. So did that disharmony come with just independence and changing policies and sort of demarking protected areas? I think it goes back to even pre-independence. I think one must appreciate that the colonial rules that were brought in 100 years ago were based on sort of Western government styles and natural resources, including wildlife, became the property of the state. And of course, that put a barrier between people who traditionally had looked at wildlife as part of their survival. All of a sudden, they were now excluded from that. And that created conflict. And that conflict didn't cease until independence. And it was after independence that this became more of an issue because they felt now 
that with independence, they were entitled to go back to the way they lived. So conflict increased after independence. And that is what we had to work through and find a solution to that, to empower the community to become more responsible and to engage in decision-making of their and use of their own resources. So it was these traditional ways of life, so people that were, that hunting was a big part of their livelihoods. In a short space of time, they go from being hunters, sustainable and living in harmony as best you can, to being effectively poachers with that sort of change in policies. That's precisely how they saw it. It was put to me clearly many times that, you know, we developed the technique of living in harmony with the environment and we never abused and we never overused. But when that ability was taken away from us, now it turned us into criminals because we continued to utilize it as we had been for centuries. And that's when there was a conflict between the laws of the country and the traditions of a community. And Campfire, that was an early programme and it has led to further models and approaches since based on that. What did success for conservation actually look like in terms of the changes and experiences of the Mahenye community and why there, why the Mahenye? Mahenye was the communal area adjacent to the Gona Rejour that posed the greatest threat to the park. Its geographical location of being next to the Mozambique border opened opportunities for criminals coming across from Mozambique. So it became a little bit of a crook's corner because it was well positioned for that that type of activity. So from a national parks point of view, this community was seen as the greatest threat. I was then asked to facilitate and to mediate between the community and the parks authority to try and find some way of bringing some coexistence back between the community and the authorities. And it was in early 80s, in fact, it was just after independence, 82, that the first meeting was held here in the community with the community elders. I realized then that the challenges were going to be enormous and there wasn't going to be a short-term solution to this but it started a process of engagement, both at local community level and at governmental authority level in the Rari district level. And many, many meetings later, we've evolved. And I think what's important to note is that this whole experiment has taken an evolutionary process. And it's not one size fits all. I think one's got to be careful to say this solution is going to be applicable to other challenging areas and other areas. I think each area needs to be understood and the factors that are influencing decisions for that community need to be taken into account. So our experience has been a bit of an evolutionary process, adaptive management. We haven't had a formula to work towards. It hasn't been a manual that we could go and read. We've had to develop it, and the principles within the Campfire organization now all stemmed out of the experiment that we undertook for the first six years in Mahenia with this community, and that was refined and then eventually turned into an organization called Campfire. And I imagine it's a relationship that continues to evolve as times and situations change. I would love to have been a fly in the wall sort of back there in the early 80s when that first meeting took place because I'm sure 
the community had their perceptions of you as being an outsider, maybe thinking, okay, what's this guy got? What's he got to say? But there must have been a huge amount of shock and encouragement, I suppose, when they realised that not only did you understand their community, where they were coming from, but you also spoke their language. It's an obvious answer. But how important is that understanding of local language and culture when it comes to broken those conversations? You're absolutely right. That first meeting was quite a challenge and quite confrontational. It wasn't an easy meeting, but as you say, there is no doubt. Speaking the language, and not only speaking the language, but you must remember that my family has been working in this area for my whole life. So not only could I speak the language, but they knew my family and they knew me prior to this discussion, which did help. Having said that, in every situation and community, I'm sure it would apply around the world. There's always the the doubting Thomas and the one that's looking for the hidden agenda. And there was obviously a suspicion that I was being promoted by Parks to negotiate a mechanism of pushing the community further back and increasing the size of the of the park and therefore taking their land. There was a very strong suspicion of that and one that we had to deal with very you know, seriously and slowly break down those prejudices to achieve the success that we finally did achieve. Yeah, and I suppose they're right to have those suspicions because that has been their life experience of people coming from the outside, taking their land, um, depriving them of, of their traditional way of life, aspects of their culture. So we've heard about the Mahenye, but can you tell me about this Savi Valley Conservancy? Because this is quite a different starting point, wasn't it? Yeah, that project has to be one of the most exciting projects that I've had the privilege of being part of. Its starting point was looking at an area that traditionally, and I'm talking about in recent history, when I was a child, highly productive, that had the full spectrum of natural species, including elephant and large predators and buffalo. And that was nature in harmony because there was no human influence on that. In the early 70s, that area was then developed and settled as cattle ranches. And of course, the incoming businessmen that were commercial cattle ranchers quickly realized that you couldn't ranch in a zoo and you couldn't farm your cattle amongst lion and buffalo and elephant. So there was an attempt to eliminate all those species to make way for cattle. But this is also, you must bear in mind that this is a low rainfall marginal area. And of course, the droughts come around quite frequently. And it was a matter of about 20 years that the excessive pressure of a single species being the cow put too much pressure on the land and it became very unproductive and that it was seriously degraded to the point that the investors decided then to sell their interests and put the money in the bank. It was then that I had the opportunity of coming in and being part of the process of rehabilitating this area back into a wildlife area, remove the cattle, take out the fences, and develop it back into a multi-species natural wildlife production area. And to see that happen and be part of that restocking of all the species, including 550 elephant and 1,000 buffalo, et cetera, 
was truly rewarding and really exciting. I suppose that to use the land in that way f- for ranching, you obviously have to eliminate all of the those species that are in conflict with your practices, but also the lives of indigenous populations. The same goes. People can't sustain that traditional way of life because it is in direct competition with ranching. So at that point, did you arrive and think, this is what we need to do? Did you have a clear vision? You obviously could see the problems, they were abundant all around you with the communities, with the degradation of the land. So did you say, right, straight away, this is what we have to do? Or was it a longer process? Well, obviously, we were facing a situation where the environment had been taken to its knees. Nature shut down. Nature was talking to humanity and saying, you've pushed the boundary too far. And therefore, it was pretty much nature shutting down. We had no option. The first objective was to try and rebuild. And we didn't know how long it was going to take. Allow nature to heal, allow nature to rebuild, allow systems to to become more productive. That was our first challenge. But recognizing right from the beginning that this had to be economically sustainable. There's no such word as aesthetic values, certainly on this continent. Land has to be seen as contributing towards the national development and income and benefits to people. So obviously the second phase was then to look at the economic opportunities and having been involved with tourism in the past, I saw that tourism was an opportunity in its different forms. Obviously, you know, we have to consider sustainable tourism in its various forms, which adds to the sustainability, economic sustainability. So it was a process and I'm glad to say that it's been uh, reasonably successful. We're going to hear more from Clive in a little while, but next I spoke to John Fellini. John is a community member and member of the management board. So how would you describe the relationship of your community with with wildlife as it is today? Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, but as as normal, we have been living with animals since some times back in harmony and we have sort of friendship with them so that we benefit from them and then as well they benefit from us in the sense that they know that we are protecting them from being forced. Clive and I were discussing, this is a traditional way of life that people and communities were very much part of nature and I suppose through colonial policies you know, people were kind of deleted or kind of taken out of that relationship. But I suppose Today, it's about reconnecting with nature. And that's a global thing. But I suppose for your community, you see a community that is living alongside and trying to actually reintroduce that harmonious relationship with the wildlife around you. Yes, like before, it was like the national park was on its own and fighting and poaching on its own. And the community, they were on their own as well, taking as poachers. But now for the community at National Park, they are coming together to make things work between the animals and the people and and the government as well. Mm -hmm. So that means we are having one goal towards conservation and introduction of other animals. And as far as the community goes, where are the the conflict areas or the the difficulties in that relationship with wildlife? Everywhere where people live with animals, they have to be one bad, one good. Like here, we're having the human and wildlife conflict, which is the major problem which we're having with animals. 
where crops are being raided by elephants and our livestock being killed by lions and crocs in the river. So that means definitely we're having a tug of war. Yeah, and that relationship ongoing is not just with wild animals, but there's a relationship with the government. Have you seen that that is, moves in the right direction, or is there always not just a human-wildlife conflict, but is there always a community-government conflict? It's one way or the other. The people as well can fight with the animals in the sense of killing them, and they can as well do the same to us. But understanding that we, we're benefiting from each other, we are in upper hands that we have to look after them. And the government as well has realized that we have to empower the communities, which are the custodians of the resources, to look after their resources and benefit directly from them. With you and your growing family, are you optimistic about your future, your community future, and the future of your children when it comes to coexisting with wildlife? We try to make that relationship work and try to for people and animals to coexist, live together in the sense that we are having the same direction to conserve and to live with the animals in harmony without disturbing each other as we know that they are our resources. And so can you give me some examples of the conservation initiatives that take place in your community? How is the community able to benefit from wildlife and the resources around you? And how can wildlife also benefit from sharing their world with the community? Right. In the beginning, I think we do have the project called Campfire, which is now the benefit to the community, which we harvest our resources. And that benefits are brought back to the community. And as well, we have introduced these 7,000 hectares, which is the Jamanda Community and the Conservation Development Trust, which is, again, another project initiative for the conservation for Mahenya community. And this project really shows to the community that we are working towards conservation and we are having the same goal. You know, this is a journey that I suppose nature has been on, that your community has been on, that Clive has been on. And so the chief of your community, he's overseen this transition from the very start. But I'd like to know, how important is it that you elect a campfire committee to represent you every five years? How important is it to have that sort of interface with campfire? The chief, as uh, the head, it's already agreed to set aside, like I said, 7,000 hectares for conservation area and to allow the campfire project to run in Mahenye, which is a sign of let's have our resources within our area and leave, let's uh, live in harmony with our resources. Be they are predators or they can damage our lives, but we can live together. Mm-hmm. But then this one will plow back to our community in the sense of having one, employment, two, the benefits, which are the, the money which is brought back from selling the live animals or the hunting, which is the sustainable hunting. And then... And the one word that has cropped up time and time again through speaking to yourself and, and Clive is harmony. And that's a difficult thing to achieve. And I suppose it can look different ways in different scenarios. And I suppose that is a journey with lumps and bumps along the way. But I suppose for your community, it is a bit returning to being empowered and being 
involved and be involved in the strategies. But, you know, compared to sort of your grandparents and their notion of what harmony would have been back in their day, you know, what do you think your grandparents would make of your way of life now and your way of working? For the past, like I said, it was decided that we mustn't be involved with animals. Once we see the animals, we have to hunt them down. But now, with the understanding and the education that people have been given towards conservation, living in harmony with the animals, we are getting somewhere where our children, when they grow up, they will have something to plow back, something to be proud of, to see around because some other places they no longer know what a kuri is what an impala is but we are very proud here at Mahanya that we are seeing those free of charge unlike other people coming from somewhere to come in and pay and see so we are going along with them freely seeing them every day without a charge and it must be amazing for you to raise a family, in a community, in an environment that will have problems, but actually is working and is sort of looking towards the long term. And I suppose maybe some levels of excitement about what the future holds for them, certainly if you have a, an optimistic outlook, as you seem to do. Yeah, I think it's, it's just a process. It's not an event where we can finish it today. But as we, we, we get only educated, uh, we, we will get there somewhere, somehow, mm-hmm. so that people will become fully understanding that this is our resources, we have to look after them day and night. And for any of your children, do you think they're going to follow in your footsteps and, and work within conservation? Hopefully, yes. If when they have educated from the beginning, from their youngsters and up to as they grow up, they'll be growing up with their mind that this is what our forefathers have been doing. So we have to follow for But it's a process, it's not just an event where we can do it today or tomorrow. Yeah. We have to go it a long way. Yeah. Thinking back to when you were a child, could you have mapped out or guessed at what your future work would have been? I'm sorry, when I was still young, I was a hunter and together getting some meat from the bush and, and to kill whatever I found on the way. But now that I understood that we have to stay with these, we have to keep them, we have to look after them. So it looks like our friends, but definitely from my childhood it wasn't it was opposite it's really wonderful to hear you and thank you for the work that you do and good luck with everything thank you very much you are welcome that was great to hear from john and his personal and community perspective now we rejoin clive how long did it actually take to start to see nature bounce back because nature does has as, as vulnerable and fragile as it is it does have this incredible ability to recover when it's given the chance were you seeing kind of the, the effects of that almost immediately the first three or four years we actually had to just back off and literally our investment for that first three or four years was not to expect any income was just to let nature start rebuilding And the recovery within the first five years was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal in terms of seeing the various grass species coming back, productivity. And then that's when we started the restocking program. And of course, they responded incredibly well. And as I said, we moved 550 elephants and today we've got over 2,500, which demonstrate the success of that exercise. It's just incredible how nature given a little bit of space, given a little bit of time, 
a little bit of effort here and there has the ability of bouncing back incredibly well. And I suppose now we do know that how those types of areas can recover when they're given that opportunity and that chance. But I suppose back then there weren't any if or few models to say, okay, if we do this, these are the changes that we'll see. And I'd love to see that whole process across the decades in fast forward, where you start off with this degraded, impoverished land with low biodiversity, fast forwarding it to kind of huge herds of elephants and all of these accompanying animals that you would see. I mean, if, if somebody to visit this area now, are there any signs of what it previously was? Or is it just, would you think it was a kind of wild, abundant part of Zimbabwe? No, listen, I think one must appreciate that Saibu Valley Conservancy has had its challenges over the last 20 years that we were affected by the land reform. A big chunk of the land that we have on our western boundary was resettled. So we had to cede some of the land to a community. And those areas today can be looked at as a comparison, as a control area in terms of the quality of a natural environment given the same rainfall areas. So we've got some comparisons. And we've also got documentary evidence of where we started and where we are today. So I think we can demonstrate the successes that we've had. You previously mentioned the role that responsible ecotourism can play in areas like this. With Chilo Lodge, that's been running for quite a long time now, 26 years. How does that benefit wildlife and how does that benefit the local communities? Well, it's a partnership with the community to start with. And it's also was designed as a mechanism where communities can benefit through a profit-sharing deal in tourism. But one of the objectives that I sort of foresaw in the early discussions was how can the community benefit from the protected area, being the Gonorijor, an area that they lived in. Communities need to see some benefit coming back from that area. It mustn't be seen as them and us, albeit they may not be permitted to move back there to live there, but if there was a mechanism of them being able to get some benefit from the park to contribute to their livelihoods back here on their land, it would change attitudes. And I think that was one of the driving forces. In addition to that, we now have a conservation levy, which is payable monthly which contributes towards the conservation costs of running the Jamanda Conservancy, which is also a very exciting development on the back of the initial campfire program in this area where the community on the success that they saw from their commitments from the beginning made a conscious decision to set aside 7,000 hectares of their land back to just pure wildlife. There's no human occupation that this is purely wildlife. And to see the wildlife respond in terms of moving across the river and fully occupying this extension to the park is an amazing experience to witness over the last couple of years. And I suppose for you, being able to look back on your input and contributions, you must be immensely proud and satisfied when you see you've seen that you've been a witness to that change the change in the natural environment the change in attitudes of the community does that put a smile on your face on occasions when you have you can reflect on the work that you've done over the years 
Yeah, well, first of all, this is certainly not me alone. This is a team effort. It's always been a team effort. It's very much a project that has required a broad base of stakeholders, be them the community, be them authorities like the Parks Authority, be them district administrators, be them government authorities. It requires an understanding across a broad base. The success, yes, is satisfying, I have to admit. But let me also say that over the 40 years, it's been a roller coaster. There are times when you hit lows and you are convinced that it's been a waste of time, it's a failure, and it's so discouraging. And then all of a sudden you hit a high and then back up again and you think, well, you know, that's why I did it. But the way I look at it now is having experienced the highs and the lows, if one did an assessment of what the situation was like in 1982 when we started to today and see the improvement of the community livelihoods, the improvement on the environment, and the increased wildlife in the area, one has to admit that it has been reasonably successful. That gives me great satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's been more than reasonably successful. I think if you can benefit wildlife and benefit communities, that's what we're striving for. And that's really what the future around the globe is about community involvement and buy-in and mutual benefit for communities and nature. So globally, or for you sort of specifically, what are the next challenges? What do you foresee the kind of the steep slopes in the roller coaster are going to be in the future of conservation? And how can we adapt to meet these sort of changing times that are inevitable? Ultimately, our greatest challenge, and I don't think it applies to just Zimbabwe or our particular situation, but globally, and that is space. I mean, we human beings, at the rate we are growing, our population, space is going to become more and more of an issue. So to answer your question, in terms of what are our challenges and what can we all contribute towards, and I think we need to start looking and considering an integrated land use policy that will recognize the potentials of certain areas. Is there connectivity? Can corridors be put in? Can the space be managed more productively? So land use planning I think is going to be very important to maintain viability and sustainability of these areas. Patience, I have to say that this is not a short-term project. You know, anybody that's looking for a quick success and return on effort, this is going to take people that have got staying power, people that can see the medium to the long term. And also, there is need to come in in this transitional period in the development of these opportunities for not huge amounts, but some bridging funding to make sure that we do not lose the conservation side of things due to lack of income. Because whilst we're doing this experiment, it's important that the communities continue to see some benefit coming from it, which adds to the uh, challenge of economic sustainability. So there's a variety of things that need to be addressed and looked at where other conservation-minded organizations can make a contribution. So I think with policy, land use planning, funding, we have the greatest chance of successfully 
protecting some of our prime biodiverse areas. Certainly in our region, which is a low rainfall region, which is drought prone and you know, obviously puts pressure on human livelihoods as well. So there are many challenges and it requires people with staying power. I think across the course of our lives, the notion that protected areas and national parks are enough, that's simply not true. And with a growing global population, it has to be about sustainability and has to be about looking after the needs of conservation, nature, and catering for the needs of communities. And that's sort of, yeah, that is a global concern. But I think there is still this sort of misconception, certainly in the global north, that, well, we've got these protected areas. All we have to do is kind of fence them off or guard them and protect them. But that is sort of far from simple because it is removing a very important part of the equation, which is people and that growing population. I know, I couldn't agree more. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, the long-term future and sustainability of the protected areas, even with fences, is going to depend on the attitude of people living around those parks. And unless there's coexistence and willingness to share those resources, people are going to win and those protected areas are going to shrink. And it's not sustainable long-term. And I think that we have to start looking at ways of involving communities in this long-term conservation initiative. From what the efforts that you have put in, what you've witnessed, you know, there's, you must have, need to have a heavy dose of realism when dealing with the challenges of communities and challenges of recovering nature. So along with your realism, what level of optimism do you have for the future? I'm an optimist at heart. I uh, believe that Challenges have solutions, provided you approach them in the right way. So it's a case of considering all the options and finding a way forward. One of the big challenges is perceptions by the government authorities and national policies is something that needs to be revisited. And sometimes that's beyond our punching level. It's something out of the control of certainly rural communities and partners like myself. But this is something that I think will have to be revisited and maybe the influence of the international community here could also assist in making sure that governments create an enabling environment, allowing these experiments to be successful and to achieve the goals. It's been very uplifting to hear about your journey and the work that you've done and the transformation that you have seen across your life. For you personally, are there any notions of retirement or is this your life? It was obviously a calling that you've answered and sort of your upbringing was instrumental in you carrying out this work. Do you have any plans to do something else? Do you ever sort of sit back in a chair? When this is all over, when I give this up, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, no, I, I think, let me put it this way. In this culture and this language that I work with here, the Shangan, there isn't a term called retirement. They don't know what retirement means. You know, as long as there is a will and there's the strength, I have no intention of moving off anywhere else. To me, this is my life and this is what I want to see through to the end. And hopefully that during this time, we can identify young community leaders who can 
take on this, this challenge and make sure that it continues to achieve the long-term goals. It's very important that we are working with the communities. And I think this experiment that we're doing with the Jamanda Conservancy is a wonderful example, again, of the community putting forward community members. So, you know, we are evolving in dealing with capacity building and empowerment. The last thing I'd like to say is I think that for as times change with younger people becoming more involved in community decisions, I'm sure that they can take a lot of encouragement from the work that you and your colleagues have done and the transformation that you've made in the lives of people and the lives of the wild animals that they share the community with. So I'd like to say thank you very much for everything that you have done and everything that you will continue to do. Well, no, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And yes, any positive publicity that we can bring to bear on this project can only help. I certainly hope that this will lead to an interest, even if it's just people coming to visit the lodge and spending time and money at the lodge which, as I say, is a partnership with the community and a profit-sharing deal. But to understand it a bit better and to be able to share this message on a much broader platform. Thank you so much, Clive. It's been a real privilege to chat with Clive. He returned home because, in his words, that's where the baobabs are and he likes to be under a baobab. So that's two of us. Like many people, he had to go away in order to come back home, following that ecology diploma so that he could bring back the knowledge to enrich the lives of people in his local area. It's also striking how this continues today now that coexistence has been restored between people and wildlife, albeit now with conservation and mutual benefit at the heart of the schemes. If you'd like to find out more about Clive, Savvy or the Mahenya in Chilo Lodge, take a look at the links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international collaborations. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. Jama International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag Beneath the Beabub on social media. Beabub is spelled B-A-O-B-A-B. Or maybe just start a conversation with a friend. I'm Gordon Buchanan, and you've been listening to Beneath the Beabub. Beneath the Beabub.